Hello, and welcome to episode two of Yes, That Really Did Happen. Today we're going to explore the curious story of the Crown Princess Cecile and what became of this wonderful ship built in 1907, one of four ships of the Kaiser class, and how it met its untimely service end and almost the end of its career, although there was some more of the career after uh, she was withdrawn from service. So first, let's talk about the Kaiser class in general. What was so special about these ocean liners? Well, in the early 1900s, in the late 1800s, for a nation to show how powerful it was, how technologically advanced it was, and just generally how advanced their society was, it was very common to build large ocean liners. Almost everyone is familiar with the British liners. The British were known for having the best liners in the world at the time. Built by the Cunard and White Star Line, for the most part. There were many other lines out there. The Red Star Line, and there were quite a few people building ships at this point in time. There was an extremely lucrative immigrant trade going across the Atlantic at the time. The U.S. had its borders open. Ellis Island was at its height. And... Everybody wanted a piece of that trade going westbound. So there was a lot of competition. You read all the stories, you see the movie about the Titanic and all of this, and you mostly focus on the first-class passengers. First-class passengers didn't pay the rent. It was the third-class passengers who paid the rent. And they were the ones traveling for a new life coming to the United States. So in the late 1800s, the country of Germany, um, specifically at the close of the 19th century, Germany was trying to up its status on the world stage. And Emperor Wilhelm II saw the ship's companion in Louisiana and the SS Teutonic of the Cunard and White Star Lines and had looked at the Great Eastern and was obsessed with building up Germany's maritime power to surpass Britain. So he talked to the North German Lloyd Company, who was a transatlantic shipbuilder, uh, shipping company at the time, not ship, well, not shipbuilder, they commissioned the ships, and uh, talked to A.J. Vulcan, who was a shipbuilder, and they wanted to demonstrate the power of the German Empire as it had never been seen before. Enter the order for the Kaiser class of ships. These ships sparked a building war between mainly the British Cunard and White Star Line and the North German Lloyd Line, to a good point, um... And other German shipping companies, like including the Hamburg America line, to up their shipbuilding game. The Kaiser class of ships 
did things that hadn't been seen before. Two-story first-class dining rooms. Bigger, heavier, displacing 14,000 registered tons. These ships were the prototype for the later seen Mauritania, Lusitania, the Olympic-class liners, including the famous Titanic. These were all built for that tourist trade and to show to the world the sea power of the country that they flew the flag of. This is how the ship came into existence. With that background done, let's talk a little bit more about the ship itself, the Crown Princess Cecile. It was 19,400 gross registered ton. It was 706 feet or 215 meters long. And it had a width of about 72 feet or 22 meters. She had four reciprocating expansion steam engines. And those four engines drove two propellers. The interior of the ship was designed with luxury in mind. Absolute luxury. The beds converted into sofas and the washstands would convert into tables and all the metalwork was gilded and surfaces were generally white with the wooden surfaces of violet inlaid with ivory and wood. Exotic woods from around the world. There were cafes decorated in the Louis XVI style. One cafe was for smokers. The other was for ladies only. The smokers cafe had an open air section that could be enclosed in bad weather by bronze and glass doors. The ladies cafe was modeled after the bedroom of Marie Antoinette at the Palace of Fontainebleau. The first class smoking room. Now, not only did you have a cafe to sm- for men to smoke in, you also had a first class smoking room for the men. It was a modern Roman style. This ship was built to an extreme high level of luxury for its first class passengers. It started its career in 1907 and it ticket would cost at the time $2,500. That was a first class ticket. An immigrant third class ticket was $25. They operated successfully for many years crossing the ocean. So, as the years moved forward, the war clouds started coming onto the horizon. And to that end, the ship set sail in July of 1914, and the world was tense. June 28th was when Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife were assassinated. Then Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. Then Russia declared war on Germany. This was all going down. At the time, remember, this is the early 1900s. There was no such thing as bank transfers. There was no such thing as wire transfers. There was gold bullion. Banks, foreign banks, were trying to get all of their bullion owed to them by other banks 
Now, for those of you who have seen the documentary, Die Hard with a Vengeance, you'll know that there is the Federal Reserve Bank in New York City that holds an outstandingly huge gold vault. And the purpose of this gold vault is to facilitate easy transfers of gold between banks, countries, and various accounts. Anybody storing a substantial amount of gold can rent a vault space from this two-story vault 80 feet below the ground in New York City, sitting on bedrock, and they will move the gold for you if you owe another bank 10 million dollars in gold they will move 10 million dollars worth of gold from your vault to their vault and they'll charge you a dollar 75 per brick of gold that they move this is the largest gold reserve in the world and they just move it from vault to vault however that did not exist in 1914 the Federal Reserve Act wasn't passed until 1913, and these banks were not built. The one in particular one in New York was not built until 1919. So that wasn't an option at the time. At the time, if the bank wanted to move gold from one bank to another, they had to move the gold physically from one bank to another. With war getting ready to break out, there were banks in Europe, specifically England, who were anxious to get their gold from banks in America and other parts of the world. The ship was leaving <laughs> New York and was supposed to put into Plymouth, England and offload most of its gold there. They had put in, in it at the time about $10 million worth of gold bullion. $10 million of gold bullion in today's gold prices would be worth about $1 billion. It's roughly 34,000 pounds of gold or 15,400 kilos of gold. That was a lot of gold in that ship. So, on July 28th, 1914... The ship set sail from New York, bound for Germany. She was carrying 1,900 passengers and the aforementioned $10 million in gold bullion. She was supposed to put in in Plymouth, England, before reaching her home port of Bremerhaven, Germany. The captain was carrying with him at the time a sealed package from the ship's owner. North German Lloyd, with instructions to open it if he ever received a message from Siegfried relating to some disease. On July 31st at 10 p.m. ship's time in the mid-ocean, his chief officer brought the captain a wireless message that somebody had fallen sick. It was signed Siegfried. The captain opened his sealed package and found a code that enabled him to decipher the rest of the message. It said, war has broken out with England, France, and Russia returned to New York. At the time, the Cecile was about 1,000 nautical miles from its first destination, Plymouth, England. 
fearing capture by the British, the captain immediately gave orders to turn the Cecile around towards the west. Some of the passengers noticed that the ship ran and turned quickly, and suddenly the moon was on the other side of the ship. The ship was also getting a bit low on coal, and they really needed to get out of harm's way. The captain told the passengers war had been declared between England, France, and Germany, and Austria. And we're going back to America. We have enough coal for our return home, and hopefully they will not be intercepted by any four foreign war vessels. Now, there were a, a quite a few rather successful and influential American businessmen on the ship at the time. These businessmen desperately needed to get to Europe, specifically England and Germany, to get their business assets out of those countries and get onto a war footing for them. They were so desperate to get there, the fact they had already spent three days on the ship, and who knows when the next ship was going to cross due to the war breaking out. And remember, of course, at this time, doesn't need to be mentioned, but there was no air travel. The only way to cross was an ocean liner, which incidentally is a great book. You can go ahead and look it up on Amazon, The Only Way to Cross. It is an outstanding book. I've read it. I've enjoyed it. Moving right along, he ordered the outside lights to be extinguished, darken all the portals, curtains drawn, and then he had this brilliant idea. The ship was a four-funneled ship. The ship had tan or buff-colored funnels, as all ships of that class had. The White Star Line also had buff-colored funnels with a black stripe at the tie. The German ships just had buff-colored funnels. He ordered his crew to quickly paint black stripes at the top so that the ship could easily be mistaken at a distance for the Olympic. The Olympic was out crossing at that time, and he thought it might give him time to evade any British pursuers if they thought it was the Olympic heading for New York. So over the next few days, in darkness and dense fog, the captain did not reduce speed, sound his horn, he just rode through. While making this run for the neutral ports of America, he heard a lot of radio traffic from French and British liners. He was very cautious at this point, and he felt the safest place for him to go to seek the sanctuary of a neutral port was to hit the first one he could, which would have been Frenchman Bay in Bar Harbor, Maine. There was a little bit of a problem with this, as ships of that size never went to Bar Harbor, Maine in those days. Today, cruise ships come in all the time, but ocean liners never stopped in Bar Harbor. Bar Harbor was a sleepy town, however, it was also a summer retreat for the nation's elite and wealthy. Luckily for the ship, there was a wealthy millionaire yachtsman on board named 
Ledyard Blair of New York City. And he cruised the Maine coast extensively. He was a playboy. He sailed all summer around Bar Harbor. And he was able to guide the ship in and put it in the harbor on August 4th. To the small, sleepy town of Bar Harbor, Maine, this was quite the interesting development. There was never a large ocean liner in their harbor. Many did indeed think it was the Olympic, uh, as it was not well-known the German line at that point. The uh, Olympic line was much more well-known, mainly because of the sinking of the Titanic. There were pictures of the Titanic. There were pictures of the Olympic being said was the Titanic. So everybody knew what that looked like. The German ships, while famous in their own right, weren't as internationally famous as the notorious, at this point, White Star Liners due to the Titanic tragedy. So the ship puts in. The interrupted transatlantic voyage passengers, they wanted to get out of Bar Harbor as soon as possible. Many of them still needed to get to Europe despite the war. A special train was arranged from Bar Harbor to take passengers to New York. And then the ship was just kind of there there was also the issue of there was also the issue of 34,000 pounds of gold bullion which needed to be offloaded off the ship which it was and then it was delivered back to the banks that had put it on the ship to begin with now the passengers and the gold weren't interested in being bar harbor but the local residents They were certainly interested with the ship. So they decided, hey, you know, why not open the ship up and have people come on board and take a look around? That practice stopped rather quickly, though, because there was a lot of souvenirs taken by the residents of Bar Harbor as they toured the ship. But the story doesn't end there. Because how could it, right? How could the story end here? The story doesn't end there. The banks were convinced that the liner should not have turned back on July 31st because what do they know more than this captain? And war had not actually been declared when the captain reversed course. They said it could have safely made it to Plymouth since Britain did not join the war until August 4th. Uh, Remember, the United States remained neutral until 1917. So... The banks claimed significant damages from the failed shipments. As a result, they sued the ship. And they had the U.S. Marshals arrest the ship. And it remains under court control until the claim is resolved or the owner posts a satisfactory bond in place of the ship. So on October 21st, the ship was arrested. So you can see this is taking some time here. And the crew of the ship is living on the ship. And they found that Bar Harbor was a rather nice place to hang out if they were going to be stuck in a neutral port for the remainder of the war. Bar Harbor was a good place. The residents were friendly. 
they could easily fish clam lobster for their own food they didn't really want to leave and so when maine's only u.s marshal at the time a lot hasn't changed in maine (laughs) they had one single u.s marshal he served the order that the judge had put in to say move the ship to boston the captain who was a large man over six feet tall over 200 pounds rose out of his chair and said i shall not move the ship until i'm given in writing orders to do so by my company and not until i've written guidance from your government that my ship and my men will be protected he was not moving out of bar harbor and he had no desire to go to boston you know what i can't blame him i've been to boston i've been to bar harbor i'd rather go to bar harbor Although not when a cruise ship is in town, ironically, because then it's too crowded. But I digress. So the captain was assured that no interference with the progress of the craft is anticipated. And the countries now at war with Germany have acquiesced through their diplomatic representatives at Washington that the ship can travel peacefully to Boston Harbor. So they go ahead and they try the case in 1915 between March and May. This is obviously taking many, many years. And they ruled in favor of the ship's owners against the banks and passengers claim that the captain exercised proper discretion in protecting its ships, its passengers, and cargo. He turned around to protect everybody. And they found that the captain was a truthful, faithful, and trustworthy shipmaster. In 1916, the Court of Appeals said that the passengers were not entitled to any recovery, but the banks could recover damages. You know, a lot hasn't changed, has it? (laughs) The banks have more rights than people's. So the ship remained under arrest while the case went to the Supreme Court. On May 7, 1917, the Supreme Court issued an opinion written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, stating that, yes, indeed, the captain had acted prudently putting into Bar Harbor. According to Holmes, the ship was not bound to deliver gold in England at the cost of capture. He was entitled to take reasonable precautions to avoid that result. His anticipation of the war was correct, and he's not to be put in the wrong by calculations That if they went, he might have been able to do it by a margin of a few hours. So the banks had nothing to recover, except for a bunch of lawyers' fees that they inevitably probably didn't pay. But we won't go into there. So notice the timeline here. This was in May 1917. Well, (laughs) what also happened in 1917? That's right, the U.S. joined the war. So at the time of the Supreme Court decision that that would have allowed the Cecile to leave the United States, the U.S. had declared war on Germany. As a result, the United States seized the vessel and converted it into a troop transport named the USS Mount Vernon. It then crossed the Atlantic 18 times, transporting 35,000 American soldiers to France. 
A German submarine torpedoed it on September 7, 1918, about 200 miles off the French coast, causing casualties, but it was able to return to the port in France, was repaired, and made eight more crossings, returning 24,000 American soldiers home as the war ended. It became known as the Queen of the Transport Fleet. It was decommissioned in 1919 and mothballed in Maryland. In 1931, the Washington Evening Star took a look, tour of it and said the only room that was recognizable from its transatlantic days was the nursery. It was offered to the British as a troop transport when war broke out in 1939, but the offer was rejected because of its age and it was scrapped in 1940. So I just find this one of the more interesting tidbits of American history and world history and I hope you do too I also hope that you enjoy my podcast and continue to listen as I release episodes every week thank you and have a great day